If you want to make your way to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, we've been uh, through the month of December, we've looked at a series of messages, it's kind of a working title, Christmas Miracles, uh, and we're considering the impact of the birth of Christ on us as, uh, as people of God. Um, we're looking at the miracle of metamorphosis this morning, the miracle of metamorphosis. Now, we've consistently seen that the, the arrival of, of God in the flesh uh, consistently has this transformative effect on those who will believe in this child in the manger. And uh, we're going to, uh, in this last message in the series, look at Ephesians 4. Uh, our core is 22 to 24, but we're going to read a little more than that here in just a minute. Uh, what's being described in this passage is going to be the, really the miracle of the metamorphosis, the, 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 the ultimate transformative action in our lives by Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to get a little bit of context um, of this. So if you're in chapter 4 of Ephesians, I want you to back up to verse 17. And we're going to read from verse 17 of chapter 4. Uh, down to chapter 5 and verse 2. I know it's a, it's a big chunk, but again, it uh, reads fairly easy. He says in verse uh, 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth not wa- walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation uh, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitfulness of lusts, uh, to the deceitful, deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24 says, And that she put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good. Uh, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be, be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also uh, hath loved us and hath given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now when reading the context uh, you see how that core, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, is pivotal. Paul opens verse 17 talking about the life of the Gentiles. Uh, now, the Gentiles have no spiritual heritage to speak of. 
the Jews had spiritual heritage. They, you know, had the Old Testament part of the scriptures. The Gentiles just have their religions, uh, their belief in many gods, uh, even the living God Caesar. Uh, they have a system where, where, where gods need to be appeased, and, and they won't help you otherwise. Imagine not getting any help from God unless you, you know, made him happy. You did something to make him smile. It would be horrible. They live in a world where the gods that they worship are just as immoral and just as corrupt as, as they are. And it results in a religious or, or a spiritual free-for-all. That's, that's the life they live in. The Gentiles were futile in their thinking. They were, they were darkened and ignorant because of their hard hearts. They lost all that, that, that conscience, that sensitivity. Uh, they, they, they've, they've given themselves over to sensuality, so they indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greediness. They're, they're hedonistic humanists. They have raised um, their own benefit. They've raised their own pleasure to a level approaching deification. They essentially worship what is of use to them. Now, earlier in Ephesians, it's actually chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul describes the, the former life they had. Go ahead and turn over there. It's just uh, chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others." Now, Paul's not, not mincing any words here describing what, you know, the life without Christ is like. He says they were dead in trespasses and sins. So the Gentile life that he is describing is like a corpse that's been left in the ditch. It's been there for too long. The animals have gotten to it. I mean, it is dead. Dead to sin. Fixed. It's at an end. It says that they walked according to the prince of the power of the air. It's another way of saying that they were following Satan. They were not necessarily consciously Satan worshipers, but to worship Satan well, you just have to do what is best for you. Uh, Satan essentially is making footsteps in sin. And like the footsteps on the beach, the Gentiles were just concentrating on putting one foot in front of the other, uh, one footprint into the next footprint ahead of them with no concern, not even looking up and looking around as to the consequences of their actions. They were filling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. See, the response of Gentiles, the response of the unsaved, is, is, is like that 12-year-old boy on his first visit to a buffet. All that food laid out there, right? 
and they eat and they eat and they know they're going to have a stomach ache, but they eat and they eat because it's all there. And, 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 and why does he keep eating? Well, because somebody paid for this and your mom wants to make sure they get their money's worth. And so they eat and they eat and, and, and that, that, that's the Gentile mind just craving sin and eating more sin and more sin, never being satisfied, never having enough, even though they know it's going to hurt later, they still consume more and more sin. Paul is painting that picture of what, of what Gentiles were like, of what us without Christ is like. All the Ephesian Christians, as they listen to the description, they nod their head in agreement and say, oh, yes, oh, yes, those, those terrible, terrible Gentiles. But Paul makes, it, uh, Paul makes it personal. He says over in chapter 2 again, among whom also we all had our conversation. We all had that lifestyle. You were one of them, he says. You were a Gentile. You have come from that gene pool. You, you are from that strata of society. Not just the Ephesians, but us today, us here at Northland Bible Church. That is our heritage, our gene pool, uh, which we do forget, don't we? We don't want to be reminded that there was a time when we weren't as acceptable as we like to think we are now. A significant number of us here grew up in, in, in Christian homes. We, we may have something of a Christian heritage to speak of. Maybe it was on dad's side. Maybe it's on mom's side. You know, maybe you were raised good. You know, surely you're not. You're not that bad, right? You're not. You're not like them. We like to try to fool ourselves into thinking that, thinking that we're not like them, that we're better than them. But Paul wants us to make sure that we really understand our identity in Christ. But, but that is often done by comparing you now with you then and paying attention to what factored that change. The Ephesians might have been thinking, but, but Paul, my, my old life, that was such a long time ago. We like to try to say the same thing. Paul, we're a long way from the first century. I mean, we're all civilized. We're, you know, America. America's a Christian nation, right? Well, it may have been at one time, but, you know, God kind of laughs at that now, I think. And I think Paul would join that. He uses some very specific language here to, to make his point. Let's peel back the English and, and just a little bit to look at just a little bit of the Greek grammar. Uh, look in verse 22 of chapter 4. When it says in verse 22, uh, which is corrupt, that little phrase, which is corrupt, uh, the tense of that is in the present passive participle. Now, now, that may not mean a lot at first, but what Paul is describing is an action. Okay, something is happening. And in this case, the action of corruption, which is continually having an impact, that's the action he's focusing on. 
and it's not uh, the old self which was corrupted, okay? This is what you need to get. It's the old self, your old self, which is still being corrupted. That's the present part of the grammar. The passive part of the grammar is, is, is that the force of the corruption is outside your control. It's outside your scope. That's why that while our flesh our old man, our old nature is still being corrupted. That is why we must, those that believe in Christ as their Savior, they must continually reckon themselves dead to sin because the sin that is in you doesn't want to be dead. So here's, here's the thing. I mentioned this before a few times. It seems that the Lord's favorite way to refer to his people is in Christ. That phrase occurs about 89 times in the New Testament, and when you add the others, like, like in him, you know, referring to Christ, you end up with about 150 references to us being in Christ. In Christ, that is our chief identity. It's not our only identity, but it is our chief identity. Uh, it's the main one, but this in Christ identity, this, this word became flesh identity, uh, That is what wants to serve God. That is what wants to please God. That is what wants to, to read the scriptures every day. That is what wants to pray. That is what wants to love one another. It's you being in Christ and Christ in you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. That's us. That's our identity. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I'm sorry, that, that, that's, that's Romans 8, 16. The Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that's the fruit of the Spirit. The indwelling Spirit wants to produce this, and he does produce this in us. The love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith, the meekness, that power under control, that temperance, self-control. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. That is us in Christ. We commit to this life. We've trusted Christ as Savior, and we want to live for the glory of God. That is our heart's desire and, 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 and the pull of our mind towards the things of God. But that old self, that sinful flesh, that old man, which is still corrupting, it's still corrupting us. That keeps surfacing. Romans 7, verse 15, it says, For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that I do. 1 John 1, 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We have this desire, this longing to be pleasing to God, and yet we are stuck in the body of this flesh. Where does it come from, this, this, this worldly, fleshly, corrupting force? 
1 John 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we wrestle, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We have that fighting against us, and it is in us, and the corruption is ongoing. This is not a, a them issue. Oh, those Gentiles, those lost people, they're so horrible. No, this is, this is an us issue. We still battle the presence of sin in our life. We still fight the corruption that is ever present. And because it is an us issue also, Jesus makes it his issue. Jesus steps in and counteracts the corrupting with newness. See, he knows what sin does to us. He knows the corruption it causes. He knows that it's vicious and ruthless. It's an enemy, but it has a silver tongue. He knows that we are helpless to fight it without him. And because of that, let's look at just a little more grammar here. If you're in verse 23 of Ephesians 4, it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The tense there is a present passive infinitive. So what this means is you've got this ongoing corruption of sin, the presence of sin that is, that is trying to continually corrupt you. And what you have then is an ongoing action of renewal. Okay, an ongoing action of newness. This is the present part of, of that tense. An action that is taking place in the mind, but not just the brain part, but it's, 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 it's the mind, the, the innermost source of who you are. We could say it's our heart. We'd say a heart and mind together. And, and, and you're not on your own with this. That's the passive part. All right, You have help. As sin continually tries to, to, to corrupt you more and more. Jesus keeps renewing you more and more. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, he says. At John chapter 14, verse 18, verse 20 says, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye are in me, and I in you. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, But examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not yourselves how that Christ Jesus is in you. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That is our identity, the God with us, the Jesus in the flesh, born in the manger, crucified, dead, risen, ascended in me. He's in you. That makes us new, that that fights the corruption to bring continual transformation into Christ's image and likeness, fighting against the corruption of the presence of sin, to give us all that we need to stand against that old 
corrupting influence of ourself. That's the miracle of the metamorphosis where the ongoing corruption of our old self is overcome by the ongoing newness of the new mind and the new heart. And see, it is Jesus in you. It's working against the corruption that's in you. You know, it's kind of easy to be uh, influenced by outside forces, right? It's easy to be shaped and corrupted by the world. And if we started making a list, we could think of quite a few uh, things. Um, I mean, TV shapes us, right? It shapes our culture, it shapes our language, it shapes our attitude, it shapes our, our willingness to stand for or against certain social issues. It, 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 it shapes our acceptance of, of, of violent or immoral acts. You know, anything you, you laugh at, you end up accepting eventually. Um, you think how, how, how scandalous homosexuals used to be on TV, and, and they started on the sitcom, so we would laugh, you know, but now, now they're so commonplace on TV, we don't even bat an eye. See, we're not just passive participants in, in this. A lot of thinking going, goes on, and then a lot of behavior changes. Of course, we know that social media has an influence. And social media has completely redefined what friendship and personal relationships are. As many of us have, have, have bought into that definition, we have thousands of friends or followers, but we are, we are still lonely and we are isolated. Our cultural shifts can shape us. We can fall into the traps of materialism or status-seeking. It shapes what makes us value ourselves or other people. See, these are massive thinking shapers. And what shapes your thinking shapes your actions. But when, when we are in Christ, who is our identity, they can't have an ultimately shaping effect. And one way to think about it is to see that our lives are, are either going to be one of two things. They're either going to be a thermometer or they're going to be like a thermostat. Both of these items relate to temperature, but there's a big difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer merely tells you what the temperature is. So it's, it's, it's controlled, it's influenced by its environment. But a thermostat controls the temperature. I don't, I don't want you necessarily to raise your hands, but, but who, whose household fights over the thermostat? You know, it's either too hot or it's too cold. You walk by and turn it up when nobody's looking, or you walk by and you turn it down when nobody's looking. You do that because it controls the environment. The point here is that we don't have to be thermometer Christians. We don't have to allow the thinking of the world to determine what our lives are going to be like or look like. Instead, we act like thermostats. We control or influence our environment. We who have our identity because God in the flesh in us, we set the spiritual temperature of our lives, and in doing so, we influence our microculture, our sphere of influence. And the setting on that thermostat, as described by Paul, is to be created to be like Jesus Christ in true righteousness and holiness, is to be shaped into the image of Christ. 
That is our identity. That is, that is who we are. So it is supposed to be how we live. Now, how do we get our spiritual thermostat to the right setting? Well, I want you to look in Colossians chapter 3. Not too many books over. Colossians chapter 3. Look in verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, and we know that that means since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth in the right hand of God, and set your affection or set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Our, our in Jesus identity is that we have a new mind that according to Romans 12 verse 1 and 2 is, is, is renewable by our knowledge and submission to the word of God. And now we tune that setting of our mind on, on the above things, on the Christ things, on the Jesus in us and us in Jesus things, Jesus ruling us, training our hearts and minds. That's how we become the influencers we're supposed to be. Now, how do we get that? How do we learn to set that thermostat? Really, it's very simple. You have to have the mind of Christ. How do you get the mind of Christ? You have to read the book Christ wrote. Okay. It's no secret, no magic formula. To have the mind of Christ, you need to read the word of God. To have the mind of Christ, you need to be taking time to sit with Christ, to listen to him, to spend time with him. To have the mind of Christ, you need to let the word encourage you correct you, refocus you, to transform you, to revive you, to discipline you. You need to let the word of God challenge you, stretch you, and change you. So I think I'm doing pretty good right now on my own. No, you're not. Until you are in the image of Christ, you've got a lot of work needs doing. I don't need to read my Bible. I'm already a pretty good guy. No, yeah, you are, no. You're saying really that, that's, that where you are now is the best the Holy Spirit can do in transforming you to, to look like Jesus? Really? Is that the best he can do is where you are now? No, no. In order to have our minds trained by the mind of Christ, in order to see that new pattern of thinking and the new behavior shaped to the pattern of Christ, you have to be in the word of Christ and allow that metamorphosis to continue, to uh, cooperate with Christ as his renewing fights that corruption. Then as our old Gentile-infested mind is trained, we experience the freedom which comes with enjoying the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. And that relationship is to be enjoyed. We're to enjoy God the Father through Christ. Enjoying the reality 
that, that he is walking with us daily and he is graciously directing us. Then enjoying the hope which comes even when we've messed up in our walk, there's hope, there's encouragement. Enjoying the truth that God is more determined to hold on to you than you are determined to hold on to him. It's enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from the old corruption. Freedom to, to see righteousness. Freedom to see holiness. To, 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 to have that, that lived out in our Gentile lives. To honor and glorify God by our obedience to him. Through Christ, in Christ, you now have the ability, the capacity to be pleasing to God. That is a miracle of metamorphosis. That is the transformative action of Christ in your life from the moment you trusted him until you take your last earthly breath. This little baby in the manger, I know Christmas was a couple of days ago, but it's still December and it went by quick and I'm trying to hang on to it and enjoy it as long as I can. That little baby he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is our savior. He is our sacrifice. And he is the one that works to transform us into his image. If you want to see a miracle of Christmas, you watch the way Jesus works in another believer. Knocking off the edges. Training to love and sacrifice. Building in them a love for God's word, for God's people, for God's work for God's, God's action in his life. You watch that happen and you'll see this miracle of metamorphosis. You might even see it in yourself. It's not the last miracle of Christmas, but it's the last one we're going to cover. Jesus making you like him. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we are so very thankful that we've had the opportunity to see what it has meant for our Savior, for Jesus, to become flesh, to live perfectly according to the law among us, to offer himself as our sacrifice, to rise from the dead, securing our salvation. Father, thank you that we've been able to look into your word and see our identity, who we are in Christ. And while there are, of course, benefits to us for that, all the glory and the honor and the praise goes to you. We pray, Lord, that you would work in each of us, that we cooperate with you. 
as you continue to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And Father, our prayer is that as, as we become more and more transformed, Christ is lived out more and more boldly. That more and more people see Jesus in us. Father, as to that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you come ahead, please?